We're in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Hear then the word of God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ. He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who will obey him, being designated by God a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. The word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful summer's day and the chance to be gathered here as your people. Father, we have come together so that we may come to you in worship. But even now, as we sit at your feet to hear your word, Father, would you speak to us? Oh, let us see Jesus. Let us see a deeper and fuller truth about who he is and what he has done so that our hearts may be full of faith and trust and love for Christ, even as we walk through him through all that you call us to in this life. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 66 to 73 A.D., that period of time, just after Paul died, we think he was executed about 65 A.D. And so in, right after that, 66 to 73, uh, there was a Jewish revolt in the Roman Empire. And so in Israel, the Jews revolted. They went to war with Rome. And the, and the war lasted a number of years. We see that it lasted seven years. That they, they held out and fought against the Roman, the might of the Roman Empire. Uh, but it didn't go well for them. In 70 AD, uh, the Romans besieged Israel, uh, Jerusalem. They surrounded the city. Uh, they starved the city out. They breached the walls. And eventually they took, they took uh, Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the wall, leveled the walls. And they raised the temple to the ground. Biblical Judaism was centered in that temple. The Old Testament religion was centered in that temple. Jews came many times a year from all over Israel to the temple. It was at the temple that sacrifice was offered. It was the only place it was offered. It was there that the priesthood served. It was there that in the temple was the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, the, the center and the presence of God in the midst of His people. Old Testament religion, biblical religion in the Old Testament was centered on Jerusalem and on the temple. And with the destruction of the temple, God put an end to Old Testament religion. 
There was no more temple. There was no more sacrifice. There were no more priests. It was the end of the priesthood. The Holy of Holies was gone. The place of sacrifice was gone. But more than that, with Jesus' sinless life and his atoning death and his justifying resurrection, all of that was no longer needed. It was no longer necessary. Not much of the next five chapters, we've reached chapter five here, and, and much of the next five chapters in the book of Hebrews, uh, it, it, it will address the ways in which Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, has fulfilled the old covenant, has fulfilled all of that, making it unnecessary. All of these things in the Old Testament, they were a shadow of what Jesus would do. They were pictures of who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish. All of them were just shadows and promises and prophecies and institutions that pointed ahead to Jesus. All of the ceremonies, sacrifices, temple, they gave us categories to understand Jesus and what he would do. Because we would have a hard time understanding what was happening if we didn't have all of those categories that God created for us in Israel as a, in a seed form, in a shadow, and as a picture of the things that would come. Now we have the categories to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But Jesus' work that it pointed to and helps us understand that very work fulfills it. So it's no longer needed. The Lord of history removed the temple once and for all. It's been 2,000 years and it has not been rebuilt. God wanted it that way. It would be confusing and unhelpful to have that temple rivaling or competing in a sense with Jesus for our attention. John Piper says at the point of the whole history of Israel is that it's imperfect, it was inadequate, and it was incomplete. It's the point of the whole history. It pointed ahead. It, it was imperfect, inadequate, and incomplete. It all points forward towards something greater to someone perfect and complete. It pointed, all of it pointed to Jesus, to Jesus Christ. And so any eschatology, there are still some who in their eschatology, their, their hope and their thinking about end times, any eschatology that in a sense looks forward to the rebuilding of the temple makes no biblical sense. It's all been fulfilled and complete. The Lord of history himself removed it. There's no need for it anymore. Jesus himself uh, prophesied this, spoke of this. If you remember when he met the woman at the well and they had this conversation about water and living water, but there was a little bit of a, a, a debate there when, about where we will worship. She, she challenged him on some things. and The woman in Samaria, the Samaritan woman. But Jesus told her this. He said in John chapter 4, verse 21, he said, believe me, hear me, know this telling you the truth here. Jesus is talking. Believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Can you imagine? That, that statement at the time 
where the temple had been the center of the worship of the one true God for millennia. Jesus standing there in his own coming and in his own earthly ministry tells her, we're not going to do that anymore. The time is coming, it's coming pretty soon, where we are not going to worship the Father in Jerusalem at the temple anymore. And he goes on to tell her, Father's looking for spiritual worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and he's going to decentralize this, the temple. As Paul's going to tell you, don't you know? <laughs> Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? You're the temple. The presence of God abides with you and in you. The focus of God's people had to be permanently shifted away from Israel and the temple to Jesus Christ and his church and what Jesus had done, fulfilling the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Last week, we talked about Jesus' current heavenly ministry. Uh, In verse chapter 4, just before this, in verse 14, it says that we have this great high priest, a category that is is biblical, but that is not uh, contemporary with us. We have this great high priest in verse 14 who has passed through the heavens, and we talked about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, that he's been raised, and he lives there ever to intercede for us, that he is sympathetic, and he has encouraged us to come in our times of need, and he says when we come, we will find his throne, a throne of grace, and he will help us in our time of need. Right, And so this is his contemporary, this is where his ministry is right now. If somebody were to ask you, what is Jesus doing now, right now? Well, he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He stands there for us, reigning and ruling over his church and interceding with his own blood for his people. But now we descend from that glorious picture in chapter 5, the here, he, he has us descend back from that heavenly ministry to discuss what he calls in verse 7, the days of his flesh. Jesus' earthly, priestly ministry. Giving us this category to understand the, what is a high priest and what does a high priest do and where do they come from and why do we have them, right? And to understand that Jesus is the great high priest And that he fulfills all that role, we need to understand what it is. And so verses 1 to 4 describe this. He says, every high priest is chosen from among men. He's a man among men. He is appointed to act on behalf of men in their relation to God. And he does this by offering gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. And he can do that. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, which is most of us, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this... He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does, verse 3, for the people. In verse 4, and he takes, does not take this honor for himself, but only when God calls a man like he did Aaron. Right? He describes Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood in those simple verses. Why is he describing Aaron and his priesthood? here in the heart of the New Testament, to show, ultimately to show that Jesus has a greater priesthood. A permanent priesthood. Verses 6 and 10, in fact, he tells us that Jesus is designated, verse 6, 
You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he says it in verse 10 again, that that God designated him a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to come back to Melchizedek because he talks more about him in a later chapter and it goes into more of full understanding there. So we'll talk about Melchizedek later. But the point is here in the order of Melchizedek is he's pointing to a more perfect and a more permanent priesthood. Now, there are just no high priests around today. I don't know any. I'm not sure of any religions that have high priests. There are some priests around. So it's important to understand that that God is giving us these categories. He wants us to understand our salvation in this sense. And so all these Old Testament categories. And so we could think of it this way, that that the New Testament is, in the Old Testament, concealed. And... The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And so in the Old Testament, it's pointing ahead to the New Testament. It's there concealed. It's it's a shadow of, it's a promise of, it's a prophecy pointing to. There are institutions that will all, and in those things, the New Testament is concealed. Christ is concealed, but all of that in the New Testament is revealed and fulfilled in Christ. Christ, the New Testament and the Old concealed, in Old Testament and the New revealed. Jesus said this in Luke 24, 27. He says, beginning with Moses. Moses, he's where? Like the Genesis, the very beginning of the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and then all the prophets. They're at the end of my Old Testament. So Jesus taking the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and through all the prophets. He interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, it's all about me. And the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. It's all about me. And all of that that was all about him is in the New Testament revealed. Christ is the center and the point of all of it. So verse 1, we see that the high priest is designated on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So in the Old Testament, you had prophets and you had priests. Now, the prophet represented God to man, right? The prophet heard from God and he spoke to men and he told them what it was all about, what God was thinking and where God was happy and unhappy. He spoke, the prophet spoke from God to men, the priest stood and represented men to God. He spoke on their behalf. He offered prayers on our behalf. He he made sacrifice for our sins. He represents, as he said, on the behalf of men in relation to God, offering gifts and sacrifices. See, sin had separated, as we know, sin separates the human race from God. Sin in our fall has created a a gap between us, and God does not tolerate our sin. He cannot tolerate our sin in his justice. He He will judge, and he will condemn, and he will punish our sin for an eternity in hell. There is this gap between us and God. It is our sin. And the high priest stood in the gap offering sacrifice for his sin and the sins of the people that they might find mercy and acceptance with God. 
And so in verse 2, it tells us that he is able then to deal gently. Earthly, ironic priests were able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because since he himself is beset with weakness, he was high priests like Aaron were simply a man among men. They were sinners too, as are your pastors and such is now. They're men among men, beset by the same weaknesses that the people need in the same need of saving and a savior as all others. And so the high priest needed redemption. And so in verse three, we're told before the high priest could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, before he could go before God on your behalf, he had to go before God on his own behalf. And he went and he offered sacrifices for his sins so that he could find mercy and be forgiven and stand in the place where then he could now Mediate for you, for us, for the God's people. And then he would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But he had to do it for himself. He was just a man among men. He was guilty and in need of mercy. And verse 4 tells us it's not a job that just anyone got to choose. Not just any old Israelite decided, I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to be a high priest. Right? They just didn't get to do it. It's not a, a profession you chose like being a lawyer or being a doctor or being a plumber. It's not, it's not a profession you chose and just said, I'm going to go do that. A high priest seems like a good gig. You had to be appointed. God appointed Aaron to represent his people to minister in the holy things, to offer up prayers and sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews, he intends to show us that the priesthood of Aaron was imperfect, was inadequate, and was incomplete. As in everything in Israel was. It was a picture, it was, it was a revelation of something, but in that revelation it showed its, its incompleteness, its imperfection. Something more was needed. And so Jesus, he is showing us, he is gonna, he's laboring to show us that Jesus is the perfect high priest. Right? He, was, he was perfectly, he's already said here, as the scripture tells us everywhere, he was perfectly sinless. He needed no sacrifice for himself. He was already perfectly acceptable. And the atonement that he made for sin as the Aaronic priest sacrificed animals. They had to keep sacrificing animals and keep sacrificing animals. It was, it was not, it was never done. It was never over. It was never complete. And as they're going to tell us here in a minute, later in the book of Hebrews, that none of the blood of bulls or goats ever covered a sin anyway. But Jesus in his atonement for sin was perfect and it never needs to be repeated. He needed no sacrifice. And the sacrifice that he offers never needs to be repeated. It's a once for all, and he lives forever. Every priest who, in, in, in the order of Aaron died and had to be replaced, and then he died, and you had to be replaced, and you got a new one in and a new one in, and it just kind of kept going on, and he had to do sacrifice for his own sins. And Jesus never needs replacing. Jesus was appointed by God, we see in verses 5 and 6. And so all of this he wants to lead to, to say, so also Christ, right? So, so also Jesus serves this function. And God appointed him in the life of his people, like he appointed Aaron in his own time, in his own way, in the old covenant. All that now is revealed in the new, in the person of Jesus. So also 
Christ. He didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't show up and apply for the job. He was appointed by him, by the Father, by God. As it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is saying that God appointed him as the priest. Not as a son of Aaron. But in the order of Melchizedek. Which we're going to see is an eternal priesthood. And so in verses 7 and 8 it says, In the days of his flesh, he offered prayers and supplication the role of a high priest with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he doesn't save him from death, but he was able, should he choose. And with cries and tears, it says that he, that he beseeched God and it says that God heard him. He was heard because of his reverence, his sinlessness. He needed no other high priest to intercede for him. What we're being told is that God is at work in the priesthood of Jesus. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be the high priest, the perfect high priest for his people. The perfect eternal interceding mediator that his people need forever sent his only son to be the final, the final, the last, the perfect mediator, to stand in the gap between God and his sinful people. Because he offers a perfect sacrifice. And his intercession then is perfect. As we said last week, we pray in the name of Jesus. Because he is our mediator. He is the one who stands in the presence for us. And, and it's because of his presence on our behalf that we are heard. He was heard for his reverence. But we are heard not for our own righteousness or reverence. We are heard for the sake of Jesus. Who is our mediator. Who stands in the gap for us now and forever. In verse 7, it tells us, well, it really takes us back to Gethsemane, doesn't it? Can you hear in these words that last night of Jesus on earth when he's in the garden uh, looking at the cross, about to be arrested and about to you know, go through all that he's going to go through to be mocked and tortured, crucified. And in verse 7, we have this picture Jesus in the days of his flesh, Jesus, he offered up prayers and supplications, right, with loud cries and tears, tears of blood to him who were able, well, sweating blood, tears and sweat, sweating blood to him who was able to save him from death. He was in the garden looking at this death and saying, Father, have mercy. Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus sweat blood alone. It says that his soul was grieved to death. He was, he was not only facing physical death on the cross. He knew his time was at an end. But he's not just facing physical death on the cross. But he's actually facing hell. Because what he suffers on the cross for you and me is the wrath of God. It is the hell that is our destiny. That is what we have earned and deserve. And as Jesus 
faces, not just being arrested and mocked and crucified, but what he is facing and what he is, what he is dreading, what causes him to sweat blood and to cry in tears, is facing the moment when he would say, why have you forsaken me? When he would face uh, uh, the hell of separation, when he would bear the wrath that is our wage for our sin. So as we think for a moment about Jesus' suffering, from his prayers and his tears, to the mocking, to the torture, to the crucifixion, but we think of his suffering started in the garden. It said that he's grieved to death and he is crying out so, so much suffering. They say it's a real thing that you can sweat blood, that there is, that, that there is a stress thing, a, a, a phenomenon that can happen. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? It says he, he, he cried out to the Father and because of his reverence, the Father heard him. Do you remember what he prayed? He said, my father, if it be possible, right? if, you, if it could be done, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right? The father answered that prayer. Right? This, this prayer, it says that he was heard, that he was crying out the one, to the one who could save him from death. To let this cup pass. The cup is an Old Testament image of the wrath of God. That the cup of God's wrath is poured out on the day that it comes. And there's this cup of wrath that, that, is, uh, that we deserve, that we have earned by our own sin. And it says that Jesus is going to drink on the cross for us. He's going to drink that cup. The cup of God's wrath to its dregs. That God's wrath would be poured out and utterly exhausted in Christ. And as he looked at the prospect of drinking that cup, he said, Father, if, if it's possible, if there's another way that I don't have to drink the cup and it could pass, please. And the Father heard him. And the Father answered him. And the Father said, no, it is not possible for this cup to pass. No. There's no other way. God's will was done. And the son drank the cup because it was not possible. Jesus had to drink that cup to its dregs in order to deliver us from it. It was the only way. At least that seems to be God's answer. Jesus said, if it's possible, and the Father said no. And in verse 8, we see that although he was a son, although he was the Son of God, although he was the unique, begotten Son, although he was a son, he learned obedience. He prayed, not, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And even though he was a son, he learned obedience obedience through what he suffered there in the garden and subsequently on the cross. And though he faced the horrors of hell, he obeyed. 
He bowed in submission. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And God answered that prayer and he did his will. And Jesus suffered and he learned obedience. Do you remember, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 that he, that, that the Lord made the founder of their salvation, our salvation, perfect through suffering. That he suffered and he learned obedience. He was obedient. If you remember Philippians 2, that he took the form, though he was in the form of God, he took the form of a servant, the form of a man, and that he was obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. He was obedient all the way. And it was fitting that the founder, the captain of our salvation should be perfected through suffering and obedience. By a perfect obedience, we have a perfect Savior. In verse 9, it tells us that being made perfect, he became the source of an eternal salvation. Because of his obedience and his suffering that he was willing to drink the cup as horrifying as it was for him to do, that facing it, he still, through his obedience, he became the source, he says, of of an eternal salvation by removing and exhausting God's wrath in himself and in his own person. It is removed from us to him so that we are set free and have now enjoyed an eternal salvation where we no longer... Fear the wrath of God. He was made the perfect Savior, suffering, sinless, obedient, the Son of God, now the source of an eternal salvation for all who will drink from that fountain. He suffered for us. He took our place. He bore the wrath. He paid our debt, my debt. And he purchased a redemption and a forgiveness. Right? What he accomplished is nothing less than an eternal. <laughs> Don't miss the power of that word, the, an eternal salvation. We're saved not for a little while, not for this life, but forever. Death holds no fear because it is a gateway into an eternal salvation in the presence of a father who has adopted us into his own family and who will call us and bring us home. To all who obey him, it says. Right? Verse 9, being made the perfect, and he is the source of this salvation to all who will obey him. To all who will obey his call to repent and believe the gospel. To believe in him, to cling to him. To all who will obey by clinging to him, following him, trusting him, as the source and hope of a salvation that never ends. First Peter 4.17, it says, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? It's a terrifying question. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? 
The short answer is that if we do not trust in Jesus as the one who bore God's wrath in our place, is that we will bear that wrath in ourselves on that day when we stand before Him without a mediator, without a high priest who has made sacrifice for our sin, to stand alone without Him. It's the worst, most terrifying destiny a human being could face. And so the obvious question is, have you obeyed Jesus' invitation, His call, His gospel? Have you obeyed Him and put your faith and your trust in Him alone for your hope of salvation on that day? Is He alone your standing place? Do you not only pray in the name of Jesus, but intend to stand on that day in the name of Jesus? And not your own name. But you give your life to follow Jesus. Let me just close with a brief reflection back on verse 8. I think it is important and it's something that often needs to be clarified because in verse 8 it says that although He was a son, and my friends, if you are in Christ, you are a son and a daughter. Although He was a son and although we are sons and daughters, Although he was a son, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, he says this, To the church, my brothers, my sisters, you should count it all joy. Not a little joy, not a part of joy, but you should count it all joy. When you face trials, suffering, of various kinds, all kinds of it that you'll face in this life. You should count it joy, brothers and sisters who are in Christ, when you face suffering and trials of all kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces a steadfastness and obedience. And that obedience, in a, the long obedience in the same direction after Jesus has to have its full effect that you may be just as he was perfected through his obedience and suffering, you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Right? He's saying we walk the same road. Although a son, he was perfected. He was matured and made perfect through the suffering that he endured. And he is saying, the writer is saying, you follow the way of Jesus. And you should then, even in our suffering, we can count, find joy, knowing that, that there it is, he says, te- this testing, this it's suffering is testing in the sense that it, that it refines us and it matures us as we obey and walk with God in the midst of it. And, he's, and he says that we are made perfect. And what he is saying, it's not perfect in the sense of perfect righteousness, you never sin. He is saying you're made steadfast and, com- and mature as a follower of Christ who knows how to pray, not my will, but thy will be done. We learn obedience through what we suffer and and through it, do this same path. Suffering is the crucible for our sanctification. We learn obedience through the things that God brings into our lives. We learn obedience as we walk with him through the valleys of this life. And so we need to learn to pray like him we can pray both parts of the prayer, and I pray it too. Father, if it's possible, let this pass. And a lot of my prayers take that, take that vein. Sometimes things can pass. Sometimes the Lord does 
deliver us out of things. Sometimes, sometimes those things don't have to happen and the Lord is gracious. But nevertheless, Father, if it's possible to pass, but nevertheless, your will be done, not my will. Romans 5, 3, and 4, Paul says the same thing. We rejoice in our sufferings. What a crazy thing. But they're looking at Jesus, knowing that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, and he was perfected. And he knows what, Paul, that what James is saying is true, that, that through suffering and through the various trials that we have, we're, we're refined and we're matured in an endurance and along in the same direction, following Jesus to the end even to death. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing it produces this endurance and that endurance produces character and character produces hope, maturity. This is the author's concern for the Hebrews. We're going to see this. His concern is their lack of spiritual maturity. Their lack of a staying power. And that's why he says we've got to pay more careful attention. You don't drift away, that you don't fall away, that your hearts become hardened through uh, sin. He's concerned about their spiritual maturity, their lack of staying power. I've never heard a seasoned Christian say that their greatest growth and their deepest lessons were learned in their times of ease and comfort. I've never heard it said but there is a great cloud of witnesses that will testify to you that it was during times of trial and suffering that were the times of deepest growth when their roots went down deeper into Jesus where they clung to him and they needed him and they learned to pray and to trust in him and not in themselves. And they know they needed help and they were at the throne of grace seeking it and finding it. When everything else is stripped away, what we can find in the only standing place is that sense of the presence of God, his love for us, his care for us, the knowledge that he is good and that he is faithful no matter what I'm going through. Though Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. As we learn to bow the knee, we learn new depths of yieldedness. Piper says that it is this experience of suffering, that depths of yieldness to God that would not have been otherwise demanded. It would not have been otherwise learned. This depth of yieldedness, not my will, but your will be done. Obedience, even to death on a cross. Suffering causes us to cling, to go to the throne, to get on our knees, to seek grace and help. What hardship are you facing this morning? And there are a lot of them. I know many of you, all of you, most of you. And you would be surprised at the variety, the various trials of many kinds that God's people, even in this room, are going through. Will you cling to Jesus and seek His grace and His help and learn obedience through the things that you suffer? in a long obedience in the same direction after Jesus, where it produces an endurance, and that endurance is producing a character, and that character is producing a hope that will never disappoint. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we turn our hearts to you.
We thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, he who you sent to stand in the gap for us, to be our mediator. We thank you for his perfect obedience, his willingness to suffer, his willingness to endure what we deserve so that we may be set free and adopted into your family. Oh, Father, may we know this Jesus in his, as our mediator with such a depth that we would cling to him moment by moment and day by day, and especially as we come to stand in your presence, that there is one mediator between me and you, O oh Lord, and his name is Jesus. My hope is in him and in him alone. For we pray in his name. Amen.